Vision, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Caitlin. On this edition of Diffusion, we'll feature cycling scientists, replicating cells and dirty shopping carts. But first up, here's the news with Monica Sharma, Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe and Calvin Ng. If you're ever worried about germs in your shopping cart, don't worry because there are now mini shopping car washes for your shopping trolleys. Around 20 supermarkets around the United States have installed sanitizing devices for shopping carts. They look like mini car washes and the makers guarantee that the peroxide solution sprays will kill around 99% of germs, including E. coli. Researchers at the University of Arizona found that Shopping cart handles have more saliva and bacteria than public toilets. Sometimes kids uh, themselves are culprits. They put their mouths on the handlebar and they play with the fresh fruit on the, on the trolleys. Maybe it's the kids who should go through the cart wash. Spiders in space and whales in the Navy. So we've heard about spiders high on cocaine and cannabis, but this story is about spiders that are high in space. Just on the November 14th, there is going to be spiders and butterflies being sent out to space as part of an educational program. It's going to be very interesting. These uh, wannabe butterflies and spiders are going to be sent out in a little payload and they're going to be closely observed to see how well they spin their webs and catch food in a nearly weightless environment of space and then look at how they compare to uh, the spiders performing the same tasks here on Earth. And there's going to be students all across America, kindergarten to year 12, that are going to be looking at these spiders and comparing them and using this as an educational experience. From physorg.com, greenhouse gases could be preventing an ice age. Scheduled shifts in the Earth's orbit should technically plunge the planet into an enduring ice age, thousands of years from now. But this event could probably be averted because of man-made greenhouse gases. This discovery comes from geoscientist Thomas Crowler of the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and um, fellow researchers. They've been looking at dramatic swings in climate, including changes when the Earth flips from one state to the other in a relatively short time. This sort of change is called a bifurcation. According to the model the researchers have set up, which has been published in the British Journal of Nature, um, the next bifurcation should occur between 10,000 and 100,000 years from now. However, there is now so much CO2 in the air as a result of fossil fuel burning and deforestation 
that this will actually act as a heat-trapping greenhouse effect that will offset the cooling impact of orbital shift. In September 2007, a scientific research consortium called the Global Carbon Project said that atmosphere concentrations of CO2 had reached 383 parts per million, or 37% above pre-industrial levels. This is the highest level that's been recorded in the last 650,000 years. Preventing this ice age, however, is not a good thing. If left unchecked, climate change will inflict widespread drought and flooding by the end of the century, which will translate into hunger, homelessness and other stresses for millions of people. You might have seen recently with the coverage of the American election that CNN had the amazing special effects. They said they were beaming a hologram into the studio. There was a little red mark on the floor and the presenter was looking as this very fuzzy sort of not quite in focus picture of the person they were interviewing appeared. And there were references to Princess Leia. I am your father. Look. <laughs> I'm sorry, Ian, but I know what you're saying. I saw the coverage on CNN itself, but I can't really take the story that seriously because we know, don't we, that it was fake. Well, this is the, what I'm getting to, is that, yes, they faked it. The people in the studio audience could see nothing. In fact, the people in the studio doing the interviews could see the red dot on the floor, and that's all. It was computer special effect. There was no hologram. There was no 3D. And, in fact, they would have been better off talking to people on the high-resolution plasma screens in the background. But, of course, this is not the only teleportation... Sorry, the only, this is not the only holograms presented to the public recently that weren't really holograms. Telstra had a demonstration publicly, and they went one better than CNN. Instead of just showing their special effect on TV, they showed it to a live audience. Of course, their hologram was curiously flat and two-dimensional, which is not normally what you what holograms are known for. Mm. And so I had to look into what did they really do if it wasn't really a hologram? Because there was lots of talk about computer-generated images from lots of different angles and synthesising the image together and so on. So it wasn't like a projector image? Projected onto what? Ah, good question. So you're pretty close to what actually happened. It goes back to the 19th century where, you know, the old phrase that it's all done with smoke and mirrors? Well... They used to have a very clever effect in the 19th century cinema where actors on the stage could interact with people who appeared to be ghosts, who they could just put their hands through and they could do all sorts of bizarre ghostly things. And what was going on was there was a large plane of very pure glass hanging out over the stage at an angle. So it wouldn't reflect the audience, but it would reflect people in the orchestra pit. So with the right sort of lighting, just exactly right, you get people that the audience couldn't see reflected up onto the stage, appearing to act with the actors. The actors still couldn't see them, so they were still doing what the CNN people were doing, but they would look totally convincing to a live audience. And what they've done at Telstra is they've taken this idea, and instead of having just a light, which would have been a gas lamp in the 19th century, and actors hidden, they've got a computer-generated image from a series of cameras in another room, maybe on the other side of the world, whatever, but they've projected a computer image onto a bit of glass and called it a hologram. Hmm. Which is why it's flat. So, 
Telstra fake, CNN fake. So we're still waiting for the real hologram. Still waiting. up, Ian Wolfe interviews Phoebe Peters, who is a PhD student at the University of Technology in Sydney. She's also at the Institute for Biotechnology of Infectious Diseases. Phoebe's research is about cell replication and division. It turns out that cells division is more complex than we'd ever imagined. My name is Phoebe Peters and I'm a PhD student here at UTS and I work for the Institute for the Biotechnology of Infectious Diseases, also known as IBID. I actually work on the cell division of bacteria. So basically what we look at is little bacteria and we try and figure out how they divide to make two. And the idea behind figuring this out is so that we can develop new antibiotics against it as it's such a central and fundamental process for life. So you're looking at how the bacteria divide and the complex mechanisms Exactly, yeah. So in fact, it is extremely complex. It's funny, less than about 20 years ago, bacteria were regarded as just a bag of enzymes and they weren't very complex and they were just very simple, singular cell organisms. However, as soon as we start looking more closely at this, and this is usually through advanced technologies, especially microscopy and stuff like that, we see that they're extremely complex. And in fact, we still don't understand how this relatively simple mechanism of division actually comes about. So are you able to actually watch the cells divide under the microscope? Yeah, so that's exactly actually what my PhD was focused on. So one of the things that we were trying to do was look at the protein involved. So there's a protein called FDSZ, and we know that it goes directly to the middle of a rod-shaped cell, and this assembles into a ring, and this ring just constricts and like basically puts a belt around the cell and splits it into two. So what we're able to do is label this protein with fluorescence protein. So I don't know, people may have heard of the jellyfish that gives you that fluorescent protein, the green fluorescent Did protein. Did somebody get a Nobel Prize for that? Just recently, yeah. It's really exciting and it's such a good thing to be awarded because it's so fundamental. I don't know any scientist who hasn't used it really. So we basically do that. We stick this fluorescent tag onto the protein that we want to look at and we put them underneath the microscope. So what I was developing is a system to be able to look at that. So there's a lot lot of technical obstacles that you have to overcome to make sure the cells divide and that you can see the signal during that whole time. And what we're able to see is the actual division process in the cell and we can see the Z ring forming at the middle. So we can see it coming, we can see it constricting and then we can see the cells splitting into two and the whole process starting again. So that was really exciting for us. When you're looking at all these proteins, uh, are you taking them with different colours? We only look at one protein at a time often just because it's a bit hard in live cells to try and look at two, but that's exactly what we're trying to aim to do. So you can look at all these different colours so that the spectras don't overlap. So you can have, say, a green one and a red one and you have different labels and you can see how they associate and stuff. So that is, again, something that you would love to aim to do in little tiny cells. (laughs) So what are the different mechanisms you've talked about? The Z ring actually constricts and 
chops the cell in two yep. at the end of reproduction, hopefully when everything else is That's reproduced. That's the idea. So once the DNA has been replicated and everything has been sorted into the two new daughter cells, the Z-ring is the final thing that constricts. So is that the sort of thing you might interrupt with a more clever antibiotic? That's exactly what's being targeted. There's a lot of work at the moment being targeted against this FDS-Z protein as it's essential for all bacterial division. There's not very many bacteria at all that don't have it. And it's actually interestingly similar to the human um, tubulin protein, which is very involved um, in a lot of cell division events as well. But it's not too similar, so we can have antibiotics against it. So there is a lot of targeting out there for that protein. Our lab is more interested in trying to find novel targets. So FDSZ is a very well-known one that other people are working on, especially big pharma companies. So we want to look at other proteins that are involved because cell division is an intricate, very um, exact process and there's at least 15 or so actual division proteins that are involved in the event. So FDSZ is just the first one and probably the most important one. But there's a whole host of other proteins that are involved as well, some that are known and some that we still haven't really established what they are or even if what they are, what they actually do in the whole process. So if we can find some of those and also inhibit them, that's a really new novel way of targeting cell division as um, a way of stopping the cells to divide and infect other people. And with these proteins, so it's the shape of the protein determines what function it has at a particular time in the cell. It's a lot of things. So a lot of the time it's the interactions with other proteins that can determine what they actually do. A lot of proteins in bacteria actually polymerize, so attach to each other and form structures like the Z-ring. It polymerizes into this ring. And my research is also looking at the novel structure. It also seems to form a helical structure throughout the whole cell. And we're trying to determine how that is involved in cell division as well. A lot of the other proteins are membrane-associated so they're involved in the actual membrane growth, which of course allows a new cell to form. So if you can stop membrane growth, the cell can't form another cell. So again, division is inhibited and you don't get any infections. So it's all this using optical optic, microscopes? Yeah, that's a big part of our research. Of course, a lot of it is molecular microbiology, so manipulating the cell at a genetic level, like deleting genes and seeing what they do. But the only way we can do that is, again, looking at them underneath the microscope. So one part of our research is just using normal fluorescence microscopes and just having a look at what happens in the cell. And another big aspect of our research is trying to embrace new technologies because microscopy is something that advances at a crazy level and it's something that's almost hard for a biologist to keep up with because we're so focused on answering questions we don't look at the new techniques that come out to be able to answer those questions and I've been lucky I had the opportunity to travel over to Germany to use some of the new microscopes that are developed over there with Leica Um, and they're new ones that basically increase resolution and increase our ability to look at a cell without having to do too much to the cell so with electron microscopy you have to get really thin sections and you have to dehydrate the cell and you change quite a lot the actual structure of the cell so what you're looking at isn't quite real I mean it still gives us an amazing result but it's not great for bacteria because they're too small so the microscopes I went over to use actually increase resolution and they break what's known as a diffraction barrier so well, more than 200 years ago or something like that, it was proposed that you can't actually see two points that are, you know, two sm- not far enough apart. And these microscopes break that entire idea. So you can see down to amazing levels in real cells. So how small can you see with these new microscopes? Well, there's two different types. There's one which increases the axial resolution. So that's looking in the Z plane. And you can see down to 100 nanometers in that, which is amazing. So bacteria that we look at, 
are about 500 nanometers in width and about 5 micrometers long, so they're pretty small. And when we're trying to look at the subcellular events that are occurring, we need to look at nanometer resolution. And the other one also breaks the diffraction barrier by going down to about 100 nanometers laterally, so in the XY fraction. And there's even a new one that I haven't been lucky enough to use it that does both combined. So you can see basically a whole cell down to about 100 nanometers, which is pretty amazing. Yes. So you're actually studying for your PhD at the moment? Yes, I am. I'm in my fourth year, so that basically means I'm trying to write up my thesis at the moment. So PhD in science is a little different from other areas. Basically, you spend about three years doing lab research, so trying to figure out answers to the questions that we pose. And then you spend about six months writing up the thesis to try and present it to your markers and stuff. So I'm at that stage right now. And so what do you hope to do once you've got your doctorate and you're a PhD and you can go off and do whatever research you want. Well, that's exactly the point. You can go off and do whatever research you want. It's fantastic. And the one great thing about PhDs, it's completely international. It's regarded anywhere as a degree, as a a PhD. So you don't need to do any further research. And you can also change fields very easily. So one of the obvious things that has come from my research is the use of a lot of microscopes in that kind of field. So you can try and develop that further so I could work with a microscope company, something like that, if that particularly um, took my fancy, or I can change fields completely and try and answer other questions. One of the things that really interests me are more medical-based questions, so maybe trying to look at diseases that are coming out and trying to look at ways of targeting um, those. And also um, a big one is probably cancer because cancer is basically cell division gone crazy. So with my background in bacterial cell division, it's a great way to platform into cell division in human cells and trying to understand that as well. Ah, so you may end up looking at quite different things. Yeah, and that's actually very normal because PhD is basically learning how to learn. Um, You learn how to be a scientist, you learn how to problem solve, that's a massive part of it. Often you do an experiment and you get your results and it doesn't make sense or it doesn't concur with what your previous person found or it doesn't work at all. And so you've got to try and work around that. So it's either figuring out new techniques, understanding new things or just reading new papers to try and give you new ideas of tackling the questions that have arisen. So you're learning to be an independent scientist. Exactly, very independent science and also articulating yourself in the written way because that's the main way scientists communicate. So you have to be able to write articles and stuff like that. So when you try and get a job after a PhD, they don't really mind what it's in. They just know that you learnt how to be a scientist and then they can shape you so you do research that they like in the way that they want you to answer fundamental questions of life and that's where I find it so interesting. I mean... This one isn't, what I do is not particularly focused on answering a medical-based question. I mean, it's got the element of antibiotics, but it's more knowing for knowing's sake. So I like the idea that fundamental research is so important as we need to know how things happen to know how to stop them, especially for antibiotics, but also just knowing how things work so that we can gain a greater understanding of life because essentially bacteria are the simplest form of life that we can study. So you're getting an understanding of how life itself works. Yeah, well, that, that's what we're trying to do, and it's, it's much harder than it sounds. <laughs> well, Phoebe Peters, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Phoebe Peters. Her research may lead to new types of antibiotics targeted to stopping cells reproducing. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network.
We have a very interesting guest with us in the studio here today. We have a cycling scientist. We have Chris Lauf, who is one of the two cycling scientists who have just been on a fascinating tour through Queensland. How are you going, Chris? I'm wonderful, thanks, Caitlin. How are you doing? Not too bad. Now, you've just got back from a tour that we recently did a story on just a few months ago. How long were you gone for? Uh, yeah, well, I was gone for about seven months. Um, the trip started in April, so I was actually doing an interview, I believe it was around March or so. Um, and yeah, got back into Sydney Monday night and wow, this is a big city compared to where I've been, that's for sure. Where have you been? Well, we started our adventure in Townsville and um, made our way up the coast to Cairns into far north Queensland and then actually zigzagged across the Cape up the Cape York Peninsula and ended up all the way at the very top and into the Torres Strait Islands as well. So you were cycling for pretty much seven months straight. Yep, that's right. Seven months straight on a bike, 5,000 Ks. <laughs> wow, that's quite impressive. You must have a very sore little tush there. Yeah, look, there were some days at the end of it, definitely, absolutely. And uh, you weren't alone? No, I wasn't alone. I was with my cycling partner, Deneen Jones, fellow cycling scientist. Yeah, we had a fantastic adventure. We saw approximately 8,000 students at 51 schools um, doing a science education program. Wow, a science education program. So what exactly were you doing? Well, what we were doing was uh, going into schools and doing performances and workshops with mostly primary school age students, but also some high school kids as well, and uh, doing workshops dealing with the topic of energy and also discussing sustainable energy and sustainable transport. So the, the program was performances and then also we did some workshops as well, hands-on workshops with some of the remote communities. Yeah, so it was, it was a great adventure. Sounds like you were certainly practicing what you were preaching there with some sustainable transport. Yeah, well, that's right. Um, you know, and the, the idea of doing it on bikes came up because we, we wanted an adventure. And uh, we discussed that, you know, for both of us, the concept of learning science was it was about discovery and it's about adventure. And we thought it would be really neat to link scientific discovery with uh, physical adventure. And we thought that, you know, that would really engage the children's imagination. And we found that that was really successful. You know, the kids were fascinated, especially in remote communities that, uh, you know, we're not sure that anyone's ever ridden out to these communities. And we'd turn up on the on bicycles and uh, show these kids our bikes with all our stuff. And half the time, they just wouldn't believe us. They'd say, nah. And they'd start looking around for our car. And we're like, no, we really did cycle 12 days and several thousand kilometres to get to your school just to show you how cool science is. So you did develop some amazing relationships along the way as well, I guess. You yeah, lots of people and... that's right. And that was, that was what was fascinating about the trip was the opportunity to go into a community and, uh, and, and towns as well, um, not just as a tourist, but having opportunity to really, uh, you know, participate in community life, meet the locals. Um, schools are always a fantastic nucleus for um, all kinds of community activities. And that was really a really good way to interact with communities. And take an important message on the way as well about sustainability. What was it about sustainability that you would uh, mention to the children at school? Well, a lot of it w was a little bit more broad than that. For us, it was really about discovery and inspiring curiosity. So most of our workshops were trying to get the kids to have the confidence to ask questions and um, look, at, look at the way something works and take it apart, try and put it back together, um, try and, try and uh, conquer engineering goals, try and, try and just ignite imagination. Because uh, for us, you know, it was more about getting kids to explore knowledge and education in general rather than science specifically. We just found that science was a fantastic vehicle to do that. Now, I know that kids are renowned for some really impressive questions. 
Chris, have you got any really good questions that some of the kids asked you on the way? Um, well, poor, that's a that's a true question. I mean, the, the kids um, the kids are often embarrassed to ask the questions that they really want to ask. You know, things like, "Well, where do you go to the toilet?" and you know, when was the last time you showered? And so, you know, the, the first few questions are kind of like the standard ones and they, they, they sidelong look at the teacher saying, oh, I don't know, are we allowed to ask those sort of questions? But we, we try and, you know, make a, a really re- relaxed atmosphere. But they'll often ask you how many times you've stacked it, how many times you've fallen off, you know. Oh, uh, did you fall off? Well, I actually uh, managed to get through the entire trip without any major stacks. Deneen had a couple of uh, minor stacks, but no, nothing serious. So, um, yeah, we've actually remarkably have ended the trip pretty unscathed. Wow, congratulations. And you must have had some support along the way. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, we've had uh, generous support from Australian Geographic uh, and the Maya Foundation and also Questacon, the National Science and Technology Centre, were played a very big part in supporting the trip uh, and made, made the whole thing possible. We really couldn't have done it without those sponsors and support. Fantastic, Chris. It seems like you're doing something really exciting there. Any more plans for the future trips? Yeah, well, that was one of the things, you know, we had a lot of long nights around the campfire where, you know, not much to do aside from discuss future adventures. So there's definitely some things that uh, might be coming out, maybe some canoe trips, kayaking trips, uh, who knows? So keep your eye out. Um, For the canoeing cyclists. The canoeing scientists or whatever, yeah. We'll have to see. We might come up with a cleverer name than that. (laughs) Great. Thanks very much for coming in today, Chris. No worries. And if uh, anybody has any suggestions for future adventures, they can uh, contact us uh, through our website, which is www.cyclingscientists.com. That was Chris from the Cycling Scientists. And if you would like to see more about their adventures, remember to go to www.cyclingscientists.com. That's www.cyclingscientists.com. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions or wild passionate praise, if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice passionately communicating science on radio, then send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Monica Sharma, Patrick Ruby, Ian Wolfe, Calvin Ng, Chris Lauf, and Caitlin Howlett. <laughs> Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Caitlin. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can for the good of all of us except the ones who are dead but there's no sense crying over every mistake 
You just keep on trying till you run out of cake And the science gets done and you make a neat con For the people who are still alive I'm not even angry I'm being so sincere right now Even though you broke my heart and killed me to pieces and threw every piece into a fire as they burned it hurt because I was so happy for you now these points of data make a beautiful line and we're out of data we're releasing on time so I'm glad I got burned think of all the things we learned for the people who Black Mesa That was a joke